Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. And that's Christodoulou. Thomas Hertog was Stephen Hawking's PhD student and went on to become a leading cosmologist in his own right. He and Hawking developed a radical new theory concerning the origins of time, answering the biggest question imaginable. Why does our universe have the laws of physics that it does? This would prove to be Hawking's final scientific theory, and, at Hawking's request, Thomas wrote a book on the subject. It's called On the Origin of Time. I asked him to tell me more. Thomas, we're going to talk about the beginning of time, but let's start at the beginning of your interest in this subject. Take uh-huh. us back 25 years to your final days as a master's student in Cambridge. Oof, yeah, that's a long time. We're talking June 1998. Uh, as you say, I had just finished my master, and it was it was well known to the students in Cambridge that uh, whoever ended up uh, top at the master would uh, be invited in Stephen Hawking's office for an interview. And Stephen, of course, was interested in so that's what happened to me. And Stephen was interested in gauging whether uh, I suppose whether I would make a reasonable doctoral student under his wings and and that's what happened. So what was it like being Stephen's PhD student? It was a full-time thing. There was absolutely no separation uh, in Hawking's close circles between his professional life and and his private life. So as you say, indeed, um, we could be working literally everywhere at in the office, at home, during Wagner's Gotterdammerung in the airports. Airports are very good to work uh, with, with Hawking. And even, uh, I think, we had a good discussion on black holes, in fact, um, in the White House. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, it was an all-round affair. And, but that was so much fun, of course. Stephen was driven by... Stephen was world-famous at the time. Uh, his book, A Brief History of Time, was out. Ten years already. But I think... What mattered was the late 90s, cosmology was going through a revolution. Cosmology was going through a golden age, really, with new theoretical insights, speculations about the multiverse, uh, the discovery that the universe, that the the expansion of the universe accelerates. So there were all these mind-blowing things going on. And as far as I'm aware, Stephen was, Stephen was grounded in, 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 in all these research questions again. So even though he was world famous, fame wasn't there in the department. He was just one of us figuring out, uh, driving us, stimulating us to figure out these, these mystifying questions. Um, so it was great fun. What kind of man was he? How did he think? <laughs> Yeah, strange to say, but I thought he was easygoing. Um, he was obsessed with physics, right? that was clear. So, obsessed with science, I think he was, uh, I found, yeah, he was an, maybe an adventurer. An adventurer in life and an adventurer in science. And so, maybe this is why the two, why the private and professional side of Hawking completely intermingled. An optimist... I said, so right, uh, someone, almost an epistemic optimist, he sort of believed that we could tackle these questions and that, as strange as it might sound, by that somehow by studying 
black holes out in the universe and, and the Big Bang, that deep down we would understand much better ourselves and our place in the universe. And this, I thought, was very special. Stephen was one of these rare scientists who was driven by these deep human questions. Uh, certainly the first scientist that I met uh, as a young boy who was driven by such questions. And I thought this was very stimulating, very inspiring. Stephen claimed to you that philosophy was dead, but he no. was something of a philosopher himself, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, I don't know when he first said that. Um, he certainly repeated it many times, so I don't know the origin of that statement, but it got him into a lot of trouble, so much is clear. To me, what that meant, but of course that's the view from a theoretical physicist, is that Stephen, indeed, as you say, liked to philosophize, but to him this was always grounded in his equations. So... I think he felt that philosophy was often too much freewheeling, whereas uh, his equations and his scientific models... In fact, he insisted very much on designing and developing models and theories about the cosmos which are testable, which are verifiable. So that gives a lot of grounding, that kind of... So he strived to maintain scientific principles, but then, of course, take that science into the deepest philosophical questions we can imagine. So for him, this was not philosophy. For me, it did it, it, it feel once in a while uh, as if we were philosophizing, I can assure you. But somehow I think his genius was sort of to walk this fine line between fundamental science and physics and, 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 and philosophy. Or, to phrase it differently, to take those age-old human philosophical questions and, and kind of in, bring them into a scientific framework. That's another way of saying this. I think his attitude, uh, his, his um, style, if you wish, a scientific style, was also influenced by the legacy of Albert Einstein. So Albert Einstein famously failed to discover in the 1920s and 30s uh, that the universe is in expansion, that space expands, that galaxies recede from each other. And Einstein failed to discover this because of his philosophical prejudices. And somehow I've always had the impression that Hawking kept this in mind and tried to avoid having too many philosophical prejudices. Whether he succeeds or not is a different matter, but kind of interesting, yeah. Your collaboration with him went well beyond um, getting your PhD as his student. You were collaborating with him right until his death. How did your collaboration change as his illness made communication harder and harder for him? Yeah, dramatically, right? So what was the situation when we started out, when I met him? Um, he was, uh, as, I, as we discussed, he was into these cosmic questions. I was not understanding a word of what he was saying. But uh, he was communicating at that time through uh, that computer voice that we all know. And the way he did it at the time was by, he had a mouse placed in his hand with which he would select words uh, in, a, in a dictionary which appeared on his screen. 
And this system worked very well. He, it was very strange, but I almost felt that he sort of instinctively knew when to click his mouse to select certain words. Um, and of course, we had a lot of time. Uh, I had a lot of time. So uh, we would talk for hours and hours and days and days. And I remember those first years as a giant conversation in which he was really introducing me in detail and in depth into his uh, cosmological thinking about, about the Big Bang. Um, then communication slowed early to well, mid early 2000 and, 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 and really became difficult, I would say, around 2010. At that point, I thought, okay, this, 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 is, this is done, this is over, we, we cannot continue in this way. There would be days in which Stephen would hardly be able to, to write down a, a few sentences. But then to my surprise, it didn't stop. And it's only later that I realized that over these years, and thanks to these long conversations in the late 90s, that we had developed uh, very much a, a, a common intuition. I would say a non-verbal way of communicating, because of course, throughout all these years, I didn't always wait for him to complete his sentences, right? I mean, you do this less and less, and certainly in the heat of your discussions and in a private context, you complete each other's sentences and, and, and you get on with it. And so I could, I realized in hindsight, in, in hindsight that we were throughout the years beginning to use more and more nonverbal elements in our communication. I would detect his facial expressions. I would... Uh, and, and he had a very, he had a very expressive, he had lots of expressions, I would say. So I could detect all sorts of levels of, of yes and no and this and that. And, and, and that's what kept us going. Even when the communication through his computer slowed, we, we never lacked new ideas and thoughts and avenues to develop our hypothesis. And somehow through, through more, informal, subtle ways of communicating or collaboration continued till shortly before he died, yeah. Well, we're here really to talk about the theory that you developed with Stephen, which is a quantum theory of the Big Bang. But before we move on to that, can you give us a brief history, if you'll forgive the pun, of Stephen's major contributions to science at the time that you met him, helping to develop the Big Bang theory and our understanding of black holes? Right. I'd say there are three or four key contributions that precede um, that era. Stephen, as a PhD student in the 60s, um, used uh, Roger Penrose's work on black holes to prove that in Einstein's theory of gravity, the theory of relativity, the Big Bang is the origin of time. Penrose had already shown that black holes, inside black holes, time comes to an end. Stephen sort of flipped Penrose's arguments uh, upside down and showed that the Big Bang was the origin of time, about which Einstein's theory had then uh, nothing to say. Stephen then went on to develop, to focus his attention on black holes, to develop the theory of black holes, to, dis to discover what happens when two black holes collide, and eventually, to everyone, to his own surprise and to everyone else's surprise, he showed that if you include quantum mechanical thinking, black holes 
uh, are not eternal. Black holes slowly, slowly radiate uh, through a quantum process. So black holes shrink. Black holes have a temperature and eventually, because they radiate, black holes will uh, disappear, will evaporate. So that was a major discovery because, yeah, in the old theory of Einstein, a black hole was just a sink, a cosmic sink, and would be there, for, would be, would be there forever. So that was, I think, his second or his third major discovery. I'm not sure where we are. <laughs> and then in the 80s, and that was the central, the central theme of uh, his famous book, A Brief History of Time. In the 80s, he returned his attention to the Big Bang. As I mentioned, he had shown that the Big Bang was the origin of time, but Einstein's theory breaks down at the Big Bang and doesn't say how that Big Bang then happened or could have happened. So Stephen began to think about that problem and developed, designed, what I would say, is the first scientific model which, as he phrased it, describes the creation of the universe. So the first model of the Big Bang, and that was one of the highlights, I would say, of a brief history of time. So he sort of showed that even though the Big Bang is the origin of time, it need not be that physics, that science, has nothing to say about it. Sadly, and now we jump to the 90s, uh, the model he, he devised, the model of the Big Bang he came up with in the 1980s, yeah, out of what, what does that Big Bang, what kind of universe does that Big Bang create? Well, it became clear in the 90s that uh, this was just an empty universe. A universe without stars, without galaxies, without life, and therefore not the one we're living in. So even though he had a brilliant idea, it was a monumental leap to simply come up with a scientific model of the Big Bang. It was not a good model. And so he began to revisit the problem of the Big Bang in the 90s, certainly because it became clear in the 90s, much uh, that 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 our universe is very special. That the kind of laws, the kind of universe that has emerged from the Big Bang, is is almost delicately tuned for life to be possible. And that was something Stephen had not at all taken into account uh, in his earlier uh, thinking about the problem. Okay, let's pick up on the point that you just made about the universe being fine-tuned for life. This is a very, very, very strange concept. In what ways does the universe seem to be biophilic? Can you give us some examples of, of what you mean by the universe being fine-tuned for life? Yeah, sure, there's so many. Um, we're sitting here, you and I, in three space dimensions. Up, down, left, right, forward, back. Uh, if there had been a fourth dimension, or if, the, or if there had only been two dimensions, life would be very difficult. Uh, you would not have stable atoms, you would not have stable solar systems. Um, so why did three dimensions expand? Uh, why do we have one clear arrow of time? Why do we have the delicate balance between all the different particle forces that make it possible for atoms and molecules to exist? Why is gravity so weak? There are so many properties of the laws of physics 
and perhaps the 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 most mind-boggling of all is what is sometimes referred to as the dark energy the dark energy is a is um a substance filling all of the cosmos it's associated really with 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 an we think of it as an energy associated with empty space and it is not zero but it is extremely extremely small and the effect of that energy is to drive the expansion of the universe to accelerate the expansion of space it has a very strange property that it is not uh, attracting stuff but it's a kind of a repulsive force driving the expansion of the universe and now if that dark energy which is extremely extreme its density is extremely small if that had been just a little bit larger the expansion of the universe would have proceeded far too rapidly uh, in order for galaxies and stars to form so that's another property of the laws of nature why is the energy associated with empty space so small and yet not zero and we can go on so there are all the, there and and there are all these properties it became very clear in the 80s and certainly in the 90s when the dark energy was discovered that gee this idea that the laws of physics have nothing to do with life that idea is not tenable anymore there is something going on which we don't understand and that was of course typically a question that uh hawking liked to address one popular answer to that problem that hawking did not like is called the anthropic principle what do we mean by the anthropic principle people use it in the context of multiverse ideas so one answer that came up around that time was well, wait wait a minute okay our universe is very fine tuned it's as if it's designed for life maybe there is not just one universe maybe there is no design but maybe there are many many universes like a gigantic space filled with different kinds of universes like a little bit like like bubbles in in boiling water and each of these universes has its own big bang and so maybe the big bang is not really the origin of time maybe there are many big bangs maybe these different big bangs produce different kinds of universes yeah and at some point you have a whole collection of universes and many of them could be lifeless many many of them could be sterile but once in a while if you have enough variation you're going to find a good one but here's the issue just having a multiverse is of course not enough because that multiverse that theory which uh, uh, is not going to tell you in which of these many universes we should be and that's the context in which the anthropic principle was then brought into cosmology uh, as a principle saying aha maybe there is something on top of a scientific theory uh, a mysterious principle that sort of selects habitable universe this is a very mysterious non-scientific operation the way i the way i just told you about it and and the way i i, I perceive it it's useful in the sense that at least it focused the mind of many cosmologists on this biophilic mystery of the universe 
And on the fact, the deeper lying fact, and that was certainly something that Stephen and I uh, felt, that there should be a way to bring our existence into the equations. The anthropic principle is a non-scientific way of doing that. But maybe there is a way to do it in a scientific manner, in, uh, in a way that uh, preserves yeah, general scientific principles like falsifiability and so forth. So that, 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 that's certainly interesting. One of the main pivots in Stephen's thinking from the cosmology that existed at the time is to take seriously the idea that we can never look at the universe from an objective outside perspective. Can you explain that to us? Yes, yeah, sure. That was the that was the crux of the of the transition really in the early 2000s. Physics has always strived for to acquire a sort of an objective viewpoint on whatever system you're describing. That's how physics was developed. That's the viewpoint which is encoded in the way we think about the physical laws. And that's fine and that has been a great success even in uh, subfields of cosmology and astrophysics. But when you're probing this, this, this fundamental question that, that, you, that you were asking about, when you're probing the biophilic nature uh, of the universe, when you're asking really what is it that makes our universe habitable, surely you've got to be really careful. This is a question fundamentally that probes the relation between our existence and the nature of the physical universe. You should not put yourself outside the cosmos when you're trying to answer why you are existing within the cosmos. And so that was the big change. I think it's probably, together with his uh, black hole thing, the biggest uh, change in Stephen's thinking that we've, that, that, that we've had. In a brief history of time, uh, the theory he put forward of the Big Bang was a theory developed from what he later called a God's eye perspective. And he, was also, he also sort of associated the theory he developed with the mind of God. Huh? He, after all that multiverse stuff, he came to the conclusion, okay, this is, even the multiverse is a theory developed from a God's eye perspective. Right? You put yourself not outside the universe, but outside the multiverse. And then you say, oh, wait a minute, I need an anthropic principle now to get in. Um, so Stephen thought uh, we need a better way. Quantum theory gave us an entry point because in the microscopic quantum theory, the act of observing is not something which happens uh, from a sort of purely objective, abstract Archimedean perspective. No. It's an interaction with the system. It's genuinely an act of creation in the sense that you select this or that history encoded in the wave function. So we basically took a proper quantum approach. We decided that's the way to get the observer into cosmology and we ran with it. And that's the crux. That's what eventually led us to um, yeah, what I call Stephen's final theory a proper quantum theory of the early universe, which uh, really leads to much more of a Darwinian perspective on that early evolution. So now we're getting into the really difficult and really exciting stuff. In your and Stephen's top-down cosmology, observations taking place in the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang, in a sense, determine the physics of our universe. 
Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's really applying the heart of that quantum active observation as um, is a selection mechanism, really, that weeds out or that crystallizes, so to speak, a given set of laws. And of course, so I view it as a primitive, no, I view it as, as a kind of variation and selection process, a little bit like Darwin's process, but acting, operating in the primitive environment of the earliest universe. Variation is there in, in, in any quantum uh, world because you have these random quantum jumps. And selection is there because the interaction between the primitive fields present there is operating as a, at, down at the quantum level as an act of observation. So it's a little bit like as if the universe is observing itself. Of course, the randomness in that process means that you can't predict how this thing will end up. Just like Darwin couldn't predict based on the earliest forms of life, or biologists today can't predict the tree of life just based on, on the earliest uh, organisms. No. You reconstruct the tree of life we see around us, and you, so you work backwards. And in a way, it's a bit similar, but for the early universe, the way the laws of physics as we perceive them now are the result of that primeval evolution in which the universe then has essentially co-evolved with the tree of laws taking shape. And just like Darwin, we can't predict this in advance in our hypothesis, but we can retrodict, we can reconstruct that, begin to reconstruct that tree of life. Of course, the ultimate consequence is very profound because instead of finding or instead of discovering a kind of final theory in physics as, a, as an eternal truth, we are advancing the idea that down into the Big Bang, even the laws of physics gradually disappear and that the Big Bang is not just the origin of time, but even, an even more profound origin, the origin, you could say, the origin of physics. Um, so this really sort of, yeah, changes what cosmology is ultimately about. When I, as a layman to physics, think of quantum theory, I think of the act of observation as being something that humans do. Is that accurate enough? No. Uh, the act of observation in quantum theory um, can be performed by any sort of interaction. Even a single photon can be the observer. It's really... And it's happening all the time. In, the, in, in our environment, in, in the universe... All the time, uh, our, any sort of interaction is performing in this language an act of observation and thereby crystallizing, realizing one reality over a whole range of possible realities. I think what quantum theory is telling us is that there are a limit to what we can know and that we should much more um, accept that where our observations cannot reach uh, say say about other universes that they may or may not exist, but 
they're un they're uncertain. They, they they're sort of lost in uncertainty. What we cannot observe, and so this is interesting, right? Quantum theory is a theory about what we can know, but it's also very much a theory about what we cannot know, and that is the key part which uh, is playing out here when it comes to yeah things like the Big Bang. <laughs> is there any extent to which we can say that we humans? as observers in the present, influenced the laws of physics of the universe. Can we go back that far? Does the chain of quantum effects take us back that far in any way? Yes, but it is a long chain. Suppose we devise truly ingenious experiments which perform an act of observation that has not been done by natural nature, then those experiments would truly crystallize one set of laws over another. Of course, the laws as we know them right now, they've been crystallized, by, as we discussed, by the early universe, in the early universe, a long time ago, and they've been what they are ever since. But those laws are incomplete. You could do a thought experiment and say, well, we can go further and maybe refine those laws. Uh, I wouldn't know what it, what, what it is, eh? I mean, as a practical matter, but I'm, 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 I'm presenting you with a thought experiment here. Also, another element to your question is, and this, this is really what I had in mind, of course, there's a really long chain. There's 13.8 billion years of evolution between that primeval evolution which forged the laws of nature and us humans today asking those questions. But that chain is, is we are not disconnected. That chain is an evolution which we understand. It's a natural evolution. So even though as Stephen towards the end of his life told me some in, with our hypothesis, we put humankind back in the center. That is a typical cryptic Hawkingian sentence, and it would take another hour to explain this to you. But it is a little bit behind your question. We are not disconnected from that whole chain. Stephen said, okay, let's put that observation, that act of observation, well, let's think about it a fraction of a second after the Big Bang. And then we connect to where we are now. Is the universe a hologram? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> The real, mathematically, what has happened? What, wh why did it take us 15 years to develop these ideas? Well, the proper way to implement those ideas, to implement that top-down reasoning, so that that sort of retroactive way of crystallizing the Big Bang eh, makes use of the latest revolution in theoretical physics, which, which goes under the name of holography. That turns out, that's a long story, it's the end of my book, but it turns out to be uh, a surprising way on its own, in which gravity, Einstein's theory and quantum theory can properly work together. And holography, as the name suggests, what is the crux of, of, of that thinking? Well, you know a hologram, it's a situation in which an extraspatial dimension emerges from, from lines and scribbles on a screen through some operation, often shining light through, through it. 
And you can ask, okay, in theoretical physics, in cosmology, what is now the holographic dimension? What is now the extra dimension that pops out? Well, to our surprise, it turns out to be the time dimension. And that is exactly what in retrospect we should have expected because there was always the problematic dimension. It was the dimension which, yeah, which the Big Bang was all about. The Big Bang is the origin of time. If you're going to understand the Big Bang properly, well, this means that you must develop a new way of doing physics in which time is not a prior given, but an emergent quality of the universe. And like any emergent quality, it comes with its limitations. And so what holography provides us with is a controlled way of going backwards into the Big Bang and letting that time dimension evaporate, disappear. From a holographic point of view, we would simply say that we are running out of bits on the hologram to push the evolution uh, further. Given the obvious constraints we have around experimenting on different universes, how can you and your fellow cosmologists shore up the top-down cosmology theory? Do you think you'll be around to see this theory confirmed or something close to it? It's very difficult, right? Physics has... Physical theory, physics has gone into yeah, the most extreme realms of uh, reality. And so it's, been, it's gotten more and more difficult to probe, to test those theories and to probe those, those nasty corners of the universe. For instance, as you say, uh, the Big Bang, you can, we, cannot, we can look deep into space and so we look back into time, that's all fine. But at some point, you bump into a barrier. You bump into what is known as the microwave background radiation and you can't look further backwards because the, the Big Bang is, is in the mist. It's like trying to look in, into the center of the sun. That's not going to work. So to really unlock... That, that primeval evolution, that, that to, to probe that evolutionary character of the physical laws, we have to find a way to really look back all the way to the Big Bang, to the beginning. And I think you can really only do this with gravitational waves. The universe is transparent. Gravitational waves just travel freely, even through that primeval heat. And that primeval evolution that I talk about these transitions through which, say, the tree of physical laws uh, emerged, those transitions go together with bursts of gravitational waves, which should still be around, but they're very, very difficult to, to detect. Well, Thomas, this has been a wild trip. Thank you for joining me on the podcast and for helping us all think in a few more dimensions. Pleasure. Thank you so much. This episode starred Thomas Hertog and was produced and presented by me. The show is made by myself and Esme Bright, and we have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Next week, I'll be back in conversation with M. John Harrison, a novelist who fuses theoretical physics and human emotion to startlingly original effect. Till then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.